Two weeks ago, we looked at the communion of the saints and how that phrase is a description of what the church is to be like. It's not simply a synonym for the church. The communion of saints is the way that we are to live together in, in community, caring for one another, blessing one another, and being a blessing. And though we are diverse, yet we are truly one in Christ. And we looked at the image that God gives us through the Apostle Paul of the life of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in Corinth, they were squabbling, it seems, about the gifts and who had the best gifts and who was most important. Uh, Not surprising, the disciples had done a similar thing in Jesus' presence. Uh, They'd been embarrassed about it, but they'd still argued about who was best and who would be greatest in the kingdom. And Paul has to remind the Corinthians, who are a a struggling church, yet a a faithful church, despite their their sins and their struggles and their divisions and their spiritual immaturity, he reminds them that they are members of the body of Christ and that they are to work together. That if one member suffers, all suffer. And if one is honored, all rejoice together. And he reminds them that they have different gifts. And then as we closed our, our passage two weeks ago, the end of chapter 12, Paul says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And so let us read that familiar chapter, one known by many even outside the church as a, a beautiful piece of prose that speaks of the glory of, and the beauty of, of love. But we understand it not to just be a wonderful word, but the very word that comes from God, a word of truth, a word that is to penetrate our, our being and impact our lives. And so as we read together, let us remember, this is the voice of the Lord speaking to his people. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. 
but the greatest of these is love. Grass withers, flower falls to the earth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us look to him for his blessing. Father, we do thank you that you've given us your word, that it will abide forever. Jesus Christ has told us that heaven and earth may disappear, but not one jot, not one tittle, not the least stroke of a pen will ever disappear from your word until all things are accomplished. We pray, O Lord, that we would hold fast every word that proceeds from your mouth and that we would be quick to understand and to do. O Lord, do not let us be mere hearers of the word and not doers and thus deceive ourselves. Let us be those who hear and who do and who act according to your revealed will, for your glory, honor, and praise. Now again, we plead with you, speak to us. Keep us from distraction. Keep us from sin and error. That indeed, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul is very subtle, I think, in dealing with the Corinthians. He's, he's pretty hard-hitting at times. He, he tells them in this first epistle that they're, that they're immature, that they're infants. Uh, but when he gets really down to the, to the core of what's wrong with the church in Corinth, he deals rather gently and positively. He sets before them here the most excellent way, the way of love. This is a necessity for every church in every age. You may remember the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus that John was to convey to them in Revelation chapter 2, the first letter to the first of the seven churches in Asia. It was the letter to the church at Ephesus. And one thing is always stuck in my mind from that letter. I can't remember everything in it, but I, I remember this. Well, Jesus has something to say good about every one of the churches, except the, the middle church in Thyatira. He also has something to correct them for. And the Ephesian church, he corrects them in this. He says, you have lost your first love. Go back and do again the things that you did at the beginning. And you may remember that we talked about this a long time ago when we went through the book of Revelation, but... What does it mean? You've lost your first love. New Christians, those who have had their eyes opened and see around them the sin and misery of this world and see the, the glory and the grace and the loving kindness of God are very excited about that. Now, we don't all have that experience. I understand that. Um, we don't all have that experience. Some of us grow up in covenant homes and, and our eyes, it seems, are always open. But there are those who, though they grew up in Christian homes, have a, have a moment when they, when they finally see. It's, it's like the Apostle Paul when the scales fall from his eyes in Damascus and he finally sees. And we're, and we're so excited because we realize for the first time the horror of hell and the glory of heaven. 
And we see God in his beauty and his holiness and his love and his purity and we're overwhelmed. And, and our hearts want to burst with, with love for God who, who so loved us. And we remember that famous Bible verse that everybody knows, John 3.16, that God so loved the world. We remember that. And for the first time, it comes home to our own hearts and minds. And we, and we realize, God loved me so much that he wasn't willing that I should perish. And so he made the, the only arrangement that would serve. And his son came into this world and bore in his own flesh my sin. And he paid the penalty. He got what my sin deserved. He got my wages. Death. Death on a cross. And we understand something of the the beauty of that love. And that's partly what's going on in Ephesus there. Jesus is reminding them, you used to really love me. You used to be on fire. You used to be so excited. But the flames died down. The heat isn't there as it once was. The the light isn't burning so brightly. Go back. Rekindle the flame. Let's have the fire burn bright and, and fierce and strong. The church is to be characterized by the love of God. This is the most excellent way, Paul says to the Corinthians, now they've been fighting about who has this gift and who has that gift and which one is the best gift. Is it, is it better to speak in tongues? Is it better to prophesy? Is it better to do this or that? And they're all worried about those things. And we're not going to get into a big debate about, about those things and when they stopped and whether they're still possible. We know that with God, all things are possible. We also know that all sin is possible for men, even in the church. And so we trust God. We don't necessarily trust others. And that doesn't mean we're not loving. We'll get to that. But as we think about this, this love that is to characterize the church of Jesus Christ, I want to look at three things. First of all, the necessity of love as it's laid before us here in 1 Corinthians 13. Then the character of love as it's described. And then thirdly, the lifespan of love as it's described in the last part of this chapter. So the necessity, the character, and the lifespan of love. Love is necessary. You can't do without it. Paul reminds the Corinthians, you've been doing all these things, and you can keep doing all these things, but if you don't act from the principle of love in your hearts, then it doesn't matter what you do. And perhaps he is addressing right off the bat the things that are most disturbing to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, and again, we're not going to get into exactly what, what that means. You know, you speak in, in languages you don't know. What are, the, what are the angel tongues? People question and, and commentators go on and on about this. And it doesn't really matter for our purposes to understand exactly what the Spirit is saying there. All we know is this, that those who who speak in tongues, if they don't do it from the principle of love, they might as well be banging a gong or beating on a cymbal. 
You, know, you get a brass instrument and you give it a whack and you get some resonating sound, but it's, it's meaningless. And many have, have said about that, you know, you, you don't have an orchestra made up completely of cymbals. It's not very pleasant to listen to. Um, maybe you've listened to some, language, uh, some music from other cultures where they have a lot of brass tinkling and tangling going on. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't suit most of us to hear that. We, we, we like, we like the, the full range of, of instruments in an orchestra. And yes, sometimes the, the cymbal plays a, an important part in that. But if you just wailing on it all, with all your might, as long as you can, all it's going to do is give you a headache, in my opinion. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying here. You don't want to be a noisy gong. You don't want to be a clanging cymbal. You don't want to be something that just irritates people. Yes, you draw attention to yourself, but you, you don't give any joy or satisfaction. It's meaningless. And you can have prophetic powers. After this chapter ends, Paul will go on to say it's better to prophesy. It's better to prophesy than speak in tongues. He, he makes the argument. Listen, if you're having a worship service and everybody's going on in tongues and no one's interpreting and someone comes in, what are they going to think? He tells us. This is my paraphrase. Crazy people. That's what they're going to think. They're going to think, crazy people. What's going on here? But if they come in and you're all speaking soundly, you're all prophesying, that is you're speaking God's word. You know, we're talking to each other. We're quoting scripture to each other. We're talking about the Lord Jesus and what he's done and what he means to us. If someone comes in and they hear us all excited about who God is and what he's done, they're going to go, wow, God is in this place. This is different. And that's how we're to show that we are God's people by speaking God's word to him in prayer, to one another. No, we don't have to just quote the scriptures all the time, but we have to make sure that the words that come out of our mouths are true and kind and loving. That they're words of righteousness and peace. If you have prophetic powers and you understand all mysteries and all knowledge, great. No, you could be the, the world's greatest Bible scholar. You can understand all kinds of things. You can have all the pieces together and still be missing something if you don't have love. If you don't have love, what does it matter? If you understand everything in the Bible, you understand all the mysteries of the faith. It doesn't count for anything. It won't get you anywhere. You must have love. And that love will be an active love. A love that does something. It says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, a reference to Jesus' words. If you have enough faith to say to this mountain, be lifted up and, and cast into the sea. I remember reading one commentator. He, 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 was, he said, you know, that was just that mountain at that time. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice way to get out of it. No, Jesus is telling us that our faith can move mountains. He's telling us that. But we have to believe. Do, do you really believe is it to, to the glory of God that this mountain should be uprooted and cast into the sea? Or is it you trying to show off? Look at what I can do. I prayed for this mountain to move, and it moved. Look at me. And that's not love. Love's not proud. Love's not arrogant. Love, love doesn't boast. And so why do we want to move mountains? We want to move mountains if we want to get the obstacles out of the way so that the gospel can go forward, so that the church can grow, so that men and women and children can believe in Jesus Christ. God will clear the obstacles out of the way. 
But if we simply want that done so that we can be exalted and puffed up and proud, it's not right. It's worthless. You are nothing, Jesus, uh, the Word of God tells us. And yes, Jesus and the Holy Spirit say, you have not love and you're, you're trying to do all these things. It's nothing. Young man came to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, you know the commandments. He said, I've done them all. Jesus said, okay, go, give away everything you have to the poor and then come and follow me. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't have real love for God. But you know what? Even if he'd given away everything he had and still didn't have love for God, it would have profited him nothing. That's what we're told here. If I give away all that I have... Now, should we give away some of what we have? Certainly we should. Certainly. You know, we're a, we're a well-off congregation. The Lord has blessed us. We have, we have much to, to be thankful for. And it's important that we make sure that everyone in our midst is, is cared for and has what they need. I think it's important that we take a careful warning here because in our materialistic, consumer-driven society, We've got an idea that we, we need more than we, than we really need. Jesus tells us, pray, give us this day our daily bread. The Shorter Catechism explains that, saying that we are asking God to give us a competent portion of the good things of this life. And sometimes we want more than a competent portion. We want, we want more. I had to tell a man once who wanted me to send him money. He was in prison. He'd lost, you know, all his, his treats and everything, and he needed, he needed money, and he wanted me to send him some money. And I, I wrote back to him and said, I can't send you any money. Um, and he was very upset. You know, the Bible says, give to the one who asks of you. And I said, listen, the Lord promised us. He claimed to be a Christian. I said, the Lord promised us that he would give us our daily bread. He didn't promise us a daily porterhouse steak or surf and turf. He didn't, he didn't promise us that, that we'd, you know, get the best new car going or anything. He said he'll give us what we need. And I said, you've got what you need. You need to learn to be content with that. And he didn't like that very much, and he, he stopped writing to me. I guess I should tell you a little bit of the backstory, just a little bit. I found after I'd written to him a couple times that he'd sent the same handwritten letters to other OP churches here in Ontario, exactly the same, making the same plea, uh, claiming to be from you know, this area, and I want to come back here when I get out of jail and, and all this. And so I knew that he wasn't, he wasn't acting in good faith, but I still wanted to act in good faith to him. And I wanted to encourage him with the gospel because he, he claimed to be a believer. But he didn't like it. As... I'm sure none of you do when I tell you God doesn't promise us everything we want or everything we think we need or everything we believe we deserve. He promises us our daily bread. And he's given us the ability to work and for all of us to amass greater wealth than most of the church at Corinth could probably imagine. Well, there were some very wealthy people there, but there were some who were poor, who didn't have enough. And they needed to be treated better. But Paul is reminding them that if you give away everything you have and you don't do it from the principle of love, if you, if you do it as Jesus said, sounding a trumpet like the hypocrites do, saying, look at me, look how much I'm giving away. Well, I'm always impressed when I see one of those walls, you know, where 
where they list all the names of, of everybody who gave. I think the last one I saw was in a hospital, and they had, you know, they had gold bricks and silver bricks and bronze bricks on the wall and, and people's names attached to them. And every few, there was one that just said anonymous and stated the amount that was given. You know, some people just want their name on the wall. They want, they want people to see, I'm a gold brick level donor. I'm up, I'm up at the top there. <laughs> That's, I want you to see that. That's not acting in love. If I deliver up my body to be burned, commentators say, well, this, that, wasn't, that wasn't going on then. This, this before Nero started the process of burning people. But I think what Paul is is speaking to them about what he's hearkening back to is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Babylon, who gave up their bodies to be burned rather than to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And their defiance, I love their defiance. We don't have no need to answer you in this matter, O king. You don't have control over us. And even if you do burn us, our God will deliver us. Our God is able to stop the flames. But even if he doesn't, he will save us. They, they had great faith. They gave up their bodies to be burned because of their love for God. And faith and love frequently go together in this life. You know, you can talk about having, having great faith. You can believe that you believe. But if you don't love, if you don't love, really questions the quality of your faith. Love is necessary. You can't live a Christian life without love. What is this love like? What is its character? Well, here Paul tells us, and this is the the beauty of this passage, both in its positive and its negative admonition. In verses 4 through 7, we read the character of love. Let me read the whole thing and then make a few comments. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient, long-suffering. One of the beautiful attributes of our God, he is long-suffering. He is patient. He does not deal with us instantly as our sins deserve. He is patient with us. He's patient with all, wanting all to come to repentance, desiring that we would turn from sin, And look to him in love and in faith. Love is patient because God is love and God is patient. We are to be patient as well. That's a that's a tall order. It's a tall order to be to be patient. Remember one man saying, I I prayed that the Lord would give me patience and he gave me twins instead. (laughs) Or maybe that was his way of of giving me, sorry. The true story. Anyway, <laughs> you know, that, that when we, we can say that with any number of children, right? God gives us children, and, and, and we as parents have to learn to be patient. Sadly, sometimes we, we don't 
become as patient as we should, as quickly as we should. That's kind of a, a strange thing, you know, the man who prayed, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> we, we, can, we, can be, uh, we can be anxious and eager for patience as we think of it, but we don't really practice it. We are to be patient. We're to, we're to wait. That doesn't mean we're lazy or indolent. doesn't mean that we're, we're not active. But we're patient. We're, we're patient with others, even when they're impatient with us. And we're kind. The best way, I think, to sum that up is to say what Jesus said, do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. And really think about that. Don't just, you know, oh, well, yeah, that's what I'd want. <laughs> and I'm going to do it anyway. But really think about it. What, what do you want from others? What is your heart's deepest desire when it comes to the way other people treat you? And then turn it around. Treat them the same way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Two enormous positive attributes of love. Two characteristics of of God himself and who we are to be as his image bearers. In the likeness of God patient and kind. It's not enough to put it positively. We also have to say what love isn't. It's not rude. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. Love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its way, own way. It is not irritable or resentful. When we love, we recognize that we can be wrong. When we're proud and arrogant, we don't think we can be wrong. We think that everybody else can be wrong, but not me. And that's, that's pride speaking. When you, when you believe that you are always right <laughs> and everyone else you know, has, has missed it. You know, they've come close, but they've still missed it. You know, I, can, I can set them straight. When I was reading a, a secular description of love from a, from a psychologist, or sorry, of pride and arrogance. And, and you know, in the world, pride is a good thing. It's self-esteem. You know, it can be positive. But, but they... Uh, they went on saying, oh, arrogance, arrogance is bad. And yes, it's hard sometimes to tell the difference between pride and arrogance. And I thought, yes, that's, <laughs> that's true. But they, they endeavored to give some light, and some of it was good. You know, do you find yourself dominating the conversation? Every conversation you have, you're, you're the only one talking? You're listening only to, to, um, long enough to find a place where you can insert yourself again? Or are you constantly using I in your conversation? I did this, I did that. You know? Do other people not want you around? <laughs> because all you do is talk about yourself and promote yourself. Do you find it hard to trust people? Do you find it difficult to make lasting relationships? These are signs of, of pride and arrogance. And I think that's true. These are signs of, of pride and arrogance. Pride is very deceitful. It's very, it's very tricky. It's, it sneaks into our consciousness, and it's, it's something that's there in all of us, and it really is the, the root of all sin. And it's so hard to root out, because it is the root of sin. Lots of sins flow, flow from the sin of pride, rudeness, 
boasting, envy, wanting what someone else has. Covetousness is a form of pride. We are not to be proud. We're to be patient and kind. We're to be loving, not rude, not insisting on getting our own way. We have to do it my way. If we aren't doing it my way, it's wrong. Sometimes there is more than one way to doing things. Now, we should always be seeking to do things God's way. We should never be satisfied with our way. We always have to be holding our way up to the standard of God's way. We have to be ready to listen to others, as I said already. And James points that out, that we're to be, we're to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slower yet to become angry. Anger can often be an a indicator of the level of pride within us. Jesus got angry, but he didn't get angry because he was proud. He got angry because he was holy. We have to be careful that we don't let ourselves fall into that same, or, or, or fall into the trap of thinking that that's, that's the root of our anger. Well, I'm, I'm so holy, I, I can't stand anything else. Maybe our, our anger is, is a cover-up for sin and the sin of pride. Jesus got angry when the worship of God was being uh, abused, when the temple was, was filled with buying and selling rather than those who joyfully were praising God and offering up praise and worship. Jesus got angry in the synagogue when the synagogue ruler refused to allow acts of mercy because they didn't think it, he didn't think it was right. And that's, that was pride on that synagogue ruler's heart that, that made him think that, you know, that man didn't deserve to be healed. Jesus' anger is righteous. Jesus, in a sense, has the right to be proud, doesn't he? But he's not. He's humble and gentle. He's patient and kind. He doesn't boast. He doesn't show off. Doesn't it amaze you how many times in the gospel we read Jesus healing someone and saying, now don't tell anyone. <laughs> and that wasn't, just a, you know, that wasn't just a psychological trick. Well, if I tell them not to tell anyone, they'll tell more people and then I'll get more. He, no, Jesus is always sincere. So when he says, don't tell anyone, he's, he's doing it because he's, it's not time for his glory to be revealed. It's revealed on the cross and in the resurrection and will be fully revealed when he returns. That's when the glory of God will be seen in Jesus Christ. But until then, love is to predominate in this world and particularly in the church. Love rejoices not at wrongdoing, but with the truth. J. Gresham Machen wasn't being unloving when he wrote Christianity and Liberalism. He was being truthful. He could not rejoice with the lies that were being told in the Presbyterian Church in the United States. How all religions were okay, and you didn't really need to believe in a virgin birth. You didn't really have to believe in a, in a, in a sacrificial atoning death, a vicarious sin offering. You didn't have to believe in a resurrection or a, or a bodily return. You didn't have to believe that these miracles that are written about by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John actually took place. You could still be a Christian without all that baggage. And he kindly and lovingly said, no, that's not true. That's not Christianity. 
But I think there are many people that they thought, thought Machen was not loving. But Machen rejoiced with the truth and not with wrongdoing, not with false teaching and with error. Need to spend a few minutes on verse 7. Because when we read these words, we tend to perhaps overemphasize them. I know I've, I've seen them and heard them overemphasized many a time. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It seems to be a blanket statement. Love is, is never opposed to anything. Well, we just heard that love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so this language, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, must be qualified. It does not mean that Christians are to be gullible and naive and put up with anything. Any more than than Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, when he tells us to put up with those who persecute us and so forth. We we have to understand what what are we what are we being told here? We have to we have to love the truth. And we have to be so convicted of the truth that we, that we stand up for it, and that will enable us to, to bear all things and to believe all things that are true and to hope all things and to endure all things. All things is not a blanket category of everything. But within the church, we, we are to have a, a, a greater tolerance for one another, a loving kindness. It doesn't mean we, we put up with wrongdoing or with error but we, we deal with it gently and lovingly. Many of the commentators would say, what we're being told here is that love is not suspicious. It's not, it's not looking to find fault with others, but it's not naive or gullible either. Maybe this is a terrible illustration, but it's the best one I could come up with. You know, you, you come home one day, and, and there's somebody with a crowbar trying to pry open one of your windows, right? <laughs> And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I've interrupted you, I'll come back later. No, you don't say that at all. You go, what are you doing? <laughs> and if they say, nothing, <laughs> you go, okay, I'm a little suspicious here. And you have a right to be suspicious, don't you? I mean, here's somebody at your window with a crowbar, and you've you, you got a pretty good idea what they're doing. They're trying to get into your house, and they're not getting in to put up new decorations for you or clean the place or do the vacuuming or make dinner for you. You know they're, they're up to no good. And even though they try and tell you, well, you know, I'm, I'm Santa Claus and I'm, I'm coming to give, you know, fill the stockings. You say, no, no, I'm not going to believe that. You, know, you, you understand it. And, and it's not unloving. It'd be foolish to do otherwise. But say you're sitting in your house and you see somebody walking down the road and you don't like the look of them. And you immediately suspect that they're going to break into your house or one of your neighbors or something because you just don't like the look of them. That's not loving. That's not loving. You can't, you can't assume that you know what somebody is thinking or going to do because of their appearance. We're not to judge by mere appearances, Jesus says. We're to judge by actions. By their fruit, you shall know them. The guy with the crowbar at your window, you know what he's up to. <laughs> His fruit shows you. The guy walking down the street who you think looks suspicious, and you may be wrong. You may be wrong. You may, you may be dead wrong about, about his motives and his inclination and why he looks the way he does and why he's where he is. And so this is what we're being told here, that, that love is, is gracious and kind. It's not suspicious. It's not fault-finding. But at the same time, it's not foolish. We recognize what's going on and we see what's happening. All right. Third point. going to be brief. <laughs> 
the, the lifespan of love. Love never ends. And we could probably stop right there. Love never ends. Love is endless. All week long as I've been thinking about this, um, I've had a pop song from 1970 rolling through my brain. And I know that predates most of you. <laughs> but maybe, maybe you've heard it anyway. It was, I don't know if it is technically a one-hit wonder or not. The song was, As the Years Go By, by the Canadian band Mash McCann. None of you know how you're all going, what are we? As the years go by, the refrain is, true love will never die. That's, that's the refrain of the song. As the years go by, true love will never die. Hey, amen. <laughs> You're right. But it goes on about how love grows and what it means to different people in different seasons of life. And it begins with, the child asks his mother, do you love me? And it really means, will you protect me? The mother tells her child, yes, I love you. And it really means you've been a good boy. As the years go by, true love will never die. And it goes on and it talks about what love means to the different people asking the question and how they answer. And it comes to the, to the last one. At 65, the wife asks her husband, do you love me? And she really means, I'd like to hear it again. And the husband says to his wife, yes, I love you. And it really means I'll love you to the end. As the years go by, true love will never die. Now, you know, like I said, I'm not, you shouldn't get your theology from pop songs. <laughs> but you should bring your theology to bear on pop songs. And some of them are actually good. The same year, now you've, none of you have heard of Mash McCann, I know that. <laughs> but all of you, I expect, have heard of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. In 1970, Stephen Stills released a, a solo album. And one of the songs on that became a hit single. And the name of that song is Love the One You're With. And that's his refrain. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Now, even as an unbeliever, unconverted, that song grated on my nerves. It was just awful, you know? If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. No, that's not true love. That's not love at all. That's animal lust. I'm much happier with Mash McCann. True love will never die. Because that's a biblical thought. It's a biblical reality. It reflects God's view of love. Love does not end. Even when faith and hope pass away because they are realized in heaven, true love goes on. I also like the fact that as the years go by, true love grows. It increases. And and Paul alludes to that. He says, when I was a child, yeah, okay, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. I was childish. But when I became a man, I put those childish ways behind me. We're to be growing in love. Do you see yourself growing in love? Do you see expressions of biblical love being more evident in your life? Or do you see your life being characterized by pride? By arrogance? By irritability? By resent? You can't be happy for other people. You can't delight in what they're doing. Love has a lifespan, and it's to be growing, it's to be increasing. Love, like faith, must grow. But love, unlike faith, will continue to grow to all eternity. Love will increase and expand in the kingdom of God's love in heaven itself. We are to be living as a loving community. 
the communion of the saints, loving one another and showing the love of God to one another. Because now, now, faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Let's give thanks to the Lord for his love to us. Father, we do thank you that you loved us and that you gave your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place, that we might have life and that life to the full. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for coming for us. And we thank you, Father and Son, for sending the Holy Spirit to work faith in us so that we could grow in love and exercise that love according to your word, according to your will, and always for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us confess.